Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is June 22nd, 2015. This is episode 1495 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Monday. So we are here with a listener feedback show. This is where you send me emails to jack at com and put whatever you want in the subject line, honestly, as long as you include the letters TSPC, like it's a single word, TSPC, and then question for Jack, comment for Jack, thought for the show, whatever you want. Formula to get on the air. Make your point or ask your question in one to two sentences maximum. Hit the return key a couple times and then give me your details. Do that, you'll be more likely to get on the air. Or if you don't get on the air to get a response from me or put on my Facebook page or whatever. A lot of times you guys send me information. I can't get everything on the show, but I do put a lot of it out in social media, etc. Anyway, before I get to that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is jmbullion.com. When I'm looking for silver or gold... I go to jambullion.com, and I'll tell you why. They're a small enough company that I can personally communicate directly with the president, Michael, at any time of my choosing. And that means as uh, as someone that's endorsing them, if you ever have a problem that doesn't get resolved by their customer service, which is 99% of the time stellar anyway, I can make sure that it gets taken care of for you. And I think that's really important in my sponsors. Next is pricing. The entire point of buying silver and gold is it's the same, it's the same, it's the same. You get the same Silver Eagle from JM Bullion as you do from Atmex or Monex. It's exactly the same. It's the same purity, it's the same weight, it's the same design, it's the same cut. It is the same. It's like buying a Wilson basketball, whether you buy it from you know Walmart or Academy Sports and Outdoors. It's the same. That's the point. So why pay more? So why not deal with a company that's a small company, that has great customer service, that offers free shipping on all orders, and has better pricing when you're buying the same thing. Now, why silver and gold? I'm not an all-in guy. I'm not the guy that, like, you need to get out of the dollar. They're going to burn it to the ground. It's going to be worthless tomorrow. By the way, give me your dollars, and here's some silver. I'm not that guy. But I do know that the plan for our money is a continued devaluation through the process of inflation, which is a hidden tax on the wealth of the American people. And I know that's the case because the former chairman of the Federal Reserve said so on the floor, of the, the United States House of Representatives while being questioned by Ron Paul. He admitted that and said, it's okay. That's the way the system works. It's supposed to work that way. Well, if that's the plan, then my plan is to make sure I have a wealth assurance policy. We talk about insurance a lot, but assurance is, is equally important. And the way I personally do that is I have 10% of my net wealth, roughly, in silver and gold. I recommend that you do something similar. My personal recommendations are that you consider uh, a wealth assurance program of 5 to 10% of your net wealth in hard commodities like silver and gold. And if you need silver and gold, I can't give you a better recommendation than JM Bullion. Check them out today. And remember, members of our support brigade, you do get a discount on larger orders from JM Bullion. Check the benefits section of your MSB account to learn more about that. Sponsor number two today is Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Uh, what are you going to get from Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason? 
shockingly enough, you can get Berkey water filtration systems from Jeff because he is the Berkey guy, the actual one, the only Berkey guy. There's a lot of places you can get a Berkey, but I only know of one Berkey guy, and I only know of one person with Jeff's fanatical dedication to his customers. Absolutely beyond belief how dedicated to customer service Jeff is and to making sure everybody gets uh, what they were expecting, and if there's a problem, it gets corrected fast and properly. Uh, Jeff's been with me as a sponsor for more than five years now. That's kind of unheard of in podcasting. It's really kind of unheard of in conventional radio, if you really think about it, to have sponsors stick with somebody that long. He does a great job for this audience. I, I haven't had any real complaints about him in five years. I had one person mad, but it was when well, the post office did it, and there's only so much a person can do about the post office. Um, Jeff just takes care of everybody, and he has the, some of the best pricing available because those years of great customer service have made him one of the top distributors for Berkey in the world. So he gets some really great pricing that he passes along to you. He also has a lot of other really great stuff for your prepping needs. You'll find all his Berkey stuff and all his other great stuff, like the Survival Cave line of long-term storable foods, at his website, directive21.com. Again, the website for Jeff, the Berkey guy Gleason, directive, and the number's 21, followed by a dot and a com. Check him out today, and don't be the guy that got your Berkey from the non-Berkey guy when you could deal with the original, the one and only, the true Berkey guy, Jeff the Berkey guy Gleason. Next up, I want to remind you guys about the Members Support Brigade. If you join the Members Brigade, you can help support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents per episode. Uh, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty and prior service, and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, all of you qualify for a discount. To thank you for your service to our nation at home and or abroad, the way you claim that discount is email me with service discount TSPC in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences. I'll get the discount code back to you. Before, not after you join. And if you're a current member and you want it, you got to do it on renewal because I've been running this program for like four years now. So anybody that doesn't have the discount that's a first responder didn't take advantage of it when they signed up. And converting it is really, 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 really difficult, almost impossible infinity. Anyway, everybody else, do consider joining. Just go to survivalpodcast.com, click on members, 50 bucks a year. Again, 18.3 cents an episode is what happens when you do the math. Help support the work we do, and there's discounts to over 60 vendors now. I got some new stuff coming very, very soon. Still trying to work out a deal with a major seed supplier for large volumes of seeds, not just little packets and stuff like that. Got some other great stuff coming down the pike as well. Uh, again, to learn more, just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on members. Those of you, for whatever reason, hate PayPal. Remember, I do accept payment by United States snail mail. You can pay with uh, cash, check, money order. You can pay with silver. I also do accept Bitcoin. You can learn more on the members page about that. Next up today, I uh, want to uh, cover the history segment, although brief today. I have three history segments today. One for you is In Search of the Man of Gold, El Dorado. And I have The New Sultan Has 19 Fewer Brothers. And then I have Romeo, Romeo, it's the prequel to West Side Story. I'm not going to do the Romeo one, but I do want to point out in the year 1595 was when William Shakespeare uh, first, maybe not penned, but when Romeo and Juliet made its debut, debut as a play. So one of the most famous pieces of literature of all time was first put forth before humanity as a play in the year 1595, and it was actually based on a prior poem. To learn more about that, you can read it yourself at tspwiki.com. There will be a link in today's show notes to the year 1595. I'm going to read, though, The Sultan Has 19 Fewer Brothers. The transition of power in the Ottoman Empire has always been a shaky one. 
Once the Sultan dies, it's a race to power, and the winner cannot reliably buy off all the competitors who are his brothers from multiple mothers. With so many potential usurpers, the new Sultan has traditionally murdered his male siblings, but with 19 murdered brothers, it's a bloodbath. As Mehred III comes to power, the decline of the Ottoman Empire continues. My take by Alex Shrugged. Well, I was going to say something snide about tradition, but there's a reason why they do this. In a previous succession, the wrong brother made it to the throne first, and the latecomer was bought off at considerable cost. He remained an embarrassment for a long time, even joining forces with the Pope. Then the brother organized an army and attacked the Sultan. If one can't buy off a competitor, all one can do is destroy him or be destroyed. That is why all brothers were destroyed, but it created a lot of resentful mothers. Those mothers could throw a lot of sand into the gears, So Mahet the third had his mother murdered as well as his own son. Uh, nice guys, huh? Um, you might think, look at these barbarians and there's this Muslim tradition of barbarianism. Um, there's a lot of tradition of barbarianism across the spectrum and we've continued it today. We just have gone to a softer way of destroying our political enemies. The entire political system in the United States is based on one person destroying another person's character and destroying their opportunities. Uh, that's because your government's run by criminals. The more things change, the more they stay the same. My take by Jack Speaker. With that, let's go ahead and uh, get right into your uh, main topic today. So I got a question from a guy named Bill. Bill says, hey, Jack, love the new expert counsel show. Love hearing from Erica Strauss. You need more women on the council, by the way. little side note there. Get in touch with me if you think you'd make a good council member, male, female. I don't do it that way. But the reason there's not more women on the council, there's not been women stepping up and saying they want to be on the council. Erica approached me, showed me your credentials. I'm like, boom, bang on, let's do this. So the council is open for consideration to all, as long as your niche is wide and broad enough to handle, let's say, 50 questions a year. If you're in a very tight, tight niche, uh, I'd rather do an interview with you than have you on the council, because we need the council to get weekly questions. Anyway, anyway, uh, you need more women on the council, but she handled a question last week about sweetening yogurt and kefir, uh, and I want to know why... She said alcohol has a party with the sugar, but why does not, why does kefir not become alcoholic from the sugar that's already in the milk? Great question. The, the short answer is because it's not fermentable into alcohol. Um, you hear the term lactose intolerant all the time. Lactose sounds a lot like sucrose, sounds a lot like glucose. Got it? Lactose is a sugar. Yes, it's a sugar. And this is one of the reasons people have a problem with something called lactose intolerance. It is a fairly complex sugar. It is more complex than glucose or sucrose or fructose or things like that. Because it's more complex, it's difficult to have it broken down. The enzymes that are in raw milk do a really good job of helping a person or an animal fully utilize This lactic sugar, this lactose that's in milk, that's the way milk was made. Milk was designed to be a complete package. And our lust and zeal to make everything perfectly safe for everybody all the time, you know, with uh, like I, so I call 
OSHA. You guys have heard of OSHA, Occupational Safety, you know, BS. You know what OSHA stands for? Organization Saving Helpless Assholes. And our zeal to make the world a risk-free environment, which can never be accomplished, we have thought we have known better than nature, and we have taken to pasteurizing milk. It does not remove the lactose. What it does is destroy the enzymes that the body would use in conjunction with the body's natural processes to break down the lactose into something that you could use more efficiently. Some people have the ability to break down this lactose fully, and some people do not. They break it down partially. It creates in copious amounts of excessive gas, and then we have what they call lactose intolerant. Okay? So that's the, the short answer is that the lactose itself does not ferment into alcohol, at least in any major degree. This is why there's a, a product called Milk Stout. And when people hear Milk Stout beer, they think, well, it probably tastes like milk. It doesn't taste anything like milk. What brewers did was realize we can actually get sugar from milk, and it actually tastes sweet. So what we do is we dissolve milk lactose into a stout beer that's generally more of like a burnt coffee-flavored beer, if you're familiar with the stout quality, or you could do a milk porter, which would be pretty nice too, and you add a certain amount of milk sugar to the ferment. Now what happens is all the regular sugars, the barley sugars, and any other adjuncts you've added ferment fully as they're supposed to attenuate based on the availability of the yeast, etc., and the temperature and all this other good stuff. And then the milk sugar stays, it's not anywhere near, if you taste it, it doesn't taste anywhere near as sweet as something like table sugar, but there's a sweetness to it. So it leaves a residual sweetness in the beer. So that when you drink it, it has this kind of richer body feel, you know, sugar. If you think about making sugar, water gets thick. So it thickens it, gives it more mouthfeel, all of that good stuff. And then you get this milk stout, right, that has this, this, this higher body and, and a little bit of a residual sweetness because the yeast you just can't tear it down. If you want lactose really torn down, you use lactic fermentation, which is done by a bacteria, not a yeast. Now in the kefir, or kefir, or kefir, however you want to say it, there is both yeast and bacterium. And it's the bacteria that take over and, and, and break down the lactose and do it in such a way that there's very little to no alcohol. Uh, kefir may have somewhere in the neighborhood, when made properly, of like 0.01 to 0.02% uh, alcohol. This is so insignificant as to be pointless to worry about. The yeast does some other things and may grab a stray sugar or two or a little bit of, of, uh, of, of the, 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 the glucose molecules that are part of the more complex lactose molecule and get a little bit here and there to, to work with, but it's very, very minimal. It's also a relatively quick process, and when you're done with the initial ferment, the kiffer goes in the refrigerator, which pretty much butts, butt cold stalls. Right, the the advancement of the yeast it just can't really get up ahead of steam when it's held at like 38 degrees so even if we add a flavoring or a sweetener to it at that point it just can't really get going now it might do a little bit and if we set it out on the on the counter it'll get going we can make some uh, uh, kefir hooch right if we if we really sweeten it up and let it sit on the counter it, it'll it'll start going and, and cook for us and make alcohol then so that's why you hold off on your sweetening and any other sugars because there's a yeast that's part of that process and the reason that yeast can't make alcohol in in the kefir is because the sugar that's in the milk is just not fermentable 
So now you probably know more than you asked for, but you also have a new thing you can do. If you're a brewer, now you know that you can add sweetness to alcoholic beverages and increase body and mouthfeel through the use of lactose. And it's amazing how all these chemical processes tend to overlap. And uh, it's a pretty interesting thing, at least to me as a brewer, that you can do that. So there's your answer to that one. This next one comes from Chris. It actually comes from a lot of you, though. I just happen to have Chris keyed up in the folder. And he says, the robots are coming, the robots are coming. And it has a link to a Fox News story. Uh, about a grocery store run by robots. Instead of reading this article, I'm going to actually play the interview from Fox News, which is about six minutes long for you, and I'll come back with my thoughts on that at the end of it. Um, here you go. That way you get it completely accurate from the source. And there will, of course, be a link to the source article and video in today's show notes to give credit as due. Again, this is on foxnews.com. Welcome back to Tech Tech. I'm Adam Housley in Los Angeles. You know, today's topic is something I kind of close to my heart, the grocery industry. I've been around since I was six years old. And now Des Moines has a new take on this whole thing. Des Moines, Iowa is doing something that might be the future of the grocery industry. And joining us via Skype from Des Moines is Aubrey Alvarez and David Marr. Aubrey is the executive director of Eat Greater Des Moines. And David is with Oasis 24-7. Uh, hey, appreciate you guys joining us via Skype. Uh, this is something I think, uh, we talked about the future and everything being automated, but this really may be servicing a need as well. Kind of give us a basic rundown. Is the city getting into the grocery business or is the city just supporting another group or private individual getting into the grocery industry? The city is really just supporting us on a new take on how to alleviate food access in a food desert in areas with low access within the city through a, a kind of a unique solution. Now, I guess my question would be, uh, from being around this industry for a long time, you know, there's always been that argument in some areas that, hey, there needs to be better food, uh, better quality food for, for people to be able to purchase in certain parts of the country, in certain, whether it be rural, whether it be urban. Um, those tend to be the two areas that are the least serviced, uh, so we're told. Um, and neighborhood markets, a lot of cases, are going away, which is what I grew up in for larger big box stores, that kind of thing. Um, well, my question to you is, so... Is this something that a private industry couldn't do, was unsuccessful at doing, and by doing it automated, it's be more affordable? Kind of give us kind of a rundown of how this would work. I think we're really looking at so we were how this excited about the potential unit when Oasis twenty four seven came to us and shared their uh, what we called their robotic retail unit. We really thought that this could fill a gap within our community where there, like you said, there isn't access to food, there isn't a full-service grocery store nearby, and so people who don't have access to transportation or, you know, are challenged, they don't really have good access to get quality food. If you're trying to do all your grocery shopping at a convenience store, that really impacts you know, the quality and your choices as well as price. So we really saw these units as a potential solution to really fill that gap within the community for uh, locations that just don't have a grocery store. And we're excited to give it a shot and see if it does meet the need that we're, you know, and trying to address the need that we see within the community. David, explain this. Now, how did you guys get involved? What will your involvement be? Are you, uh, kind of how this all came to be with working with the city? Uh, yeah, I guess uh, Adam will kind of tie back into your other question. The Oasis 24-7 is a for-profit organization, so uh, in this situation, we partnered with Aubrey and uh, E Greater Des Moines 
uh, not-for-profit, uh, so that uh, when we manufacture our store and, and they uh, buy that store and they operate that store, it uh, serves the, the food desert community. Uh, but we also have a significant amount of interest in the for-profit sort of uh, purchasers of our stores, whether they be uh, uh, an apartment complex, uh, it could be uh, parking, it could be a military base, uh, it could be Section 8 housing. You go down the list right. of the potential business channels for these automated uh, robotic, if you will, uh, convenience stores. Uh, it kind of covers both sides of the spectrum between not-for-profit and for-profit. Yeah, I'm glad you answered that because that was a big question we had. Uh, looking at the, the, you know, the, the graphics that we've been showing our viewers, I mean, these things are pretty condensed, which is nice. As we know, sometimes grocery stores can take up a large area. We know overhead's been difficult for a lot of grocers, uh, you know, because you don't really cut that big of a margin. My question to you, David, and, and Aubrey, you can follow up as well. It looks pretty simple. You walk up almost like you do a vending machine, but it's more than that, right? Uh, yes, the stores are they're, they're fairly sizable. Uh, our store runs about uh, 21 foot by 14 feet. It's 10 feet tall. Uh, large uh, bullet-resistant glass in the front allows the purchaser to stand and see all of the various racks that display the goods. Uh, our stores can be anywhere from 200 to 800 SKUs or, or items that can be uh, in on the racks. Uh, it's fully refrigerated. Uh, the product can be anywhere from one ounce to 10 pounds. So. Uh, the purchaser stands at a, uh, a, a payment site, uh, picks uh, what it is they want to, to buy. Uh, they pay with the appropriate, uh, can be credit cards or cash, could be a SNAP card, an EBT card. Uh, a robotic delivery system, uh, specifically an extractor, will go up to the rack, uh, pick the item off the shelf, put it on a conveyor belt. Uh, the conveyor belt takes that item uh, to a delivery belt as well, and then it all comes out uh, where there are multiple purchases. Depending on size and shape of the items, they might all be delivered in the same uh, cycle. Uh, if uh, there's, there's a software uh, within the robotic system that will decide whether it needs to have multiple uh, passes or not, uh, anything on those racks right. that is out of date will automatically be taken off the shelf uh, so that nobody's going to get any, any product that's, uh, that's beyond its expiration date. For more information, go to greaterdemoines.org. Aubrey, really quickly, exciting to have this uh, just going into place. When is it going to happen uh, if it does go forward the way it looks like it's going to? Yes, we have uh, been the first one to try this. Obviously, we're running into uh, just different challenges. And the first one, we because of the location, we have to go before our uh, zoning board of adjustments to ask for a variance uh, on where we want to place the unit. We're meeting with them July 25th and anticipating that they will enthusiastically say yes to our request and then right. we'll be able to begin the site press for the unit and look to have it uh, ready to go in August is our goal. Wow. EatGreaterDesMoines.com or .org. EatGreaterDesMoines.org is the uh, location. You can check it out. Uh, very good uh Really good talking to you guys. Come back to us when this thing gets going, because this is, this is a really interesting story, and it obviously is a, has a lot of ramifications, not only for your area, but across the country as well. Thanks for joining us via Skype from Des Moines. Thank you very much. All right. I'm Here's my take on this. This is There's two things about this that are kind of underplaying the whole monumentous movement that's 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 underway here. Uh, the first is this is being like a humanitarian thing. Like, these are people that just don't have a grocery store. Um, there are some really rural areas where you have to go pretty daggone far to find access to a grocery store. We, we all know that. 
And, uh, you know, that's, that is a problem for some people, and this type of thing is, makes it more feasible. Um, it, it's certainly the case in, in West Virginia where the Elijah Springs farm is. It, 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 it's, a, it's a pretty big hike to get to anything approaching a, a grocery store. And it's certainly the case that in these rural communities, uh, things could be delivered a lot more cost affordably if you didn't have to employ somebody. Of course, it's the very place that needs jobs more than any other place. Because if there are no jobs, uh, which there may be a hell of a lot less jobs in, in the next five to ten years than there are right now, especially in places like that, then who's gonna, who's gonna spend what money to buy what groceries? I, I'm sure they'll take food stamp cards though and, and, and WIC and what have you. Um, so there's, there's that component that like it's this big humanitarian outreach. And the other thing is, you, know, you look at this on the site and you really listen to what they're talking about. Well, you know what they're talking about is a giant glorified vending machine. If you think about when you go to the store and you order like a bag of chips, not a store like you're at like a, a sporting event or uh, at a, an office or something, they have a vending machine. You order a bag of chips and the thing goes and pops it out. Or a lot of times when you're at airports and you're on the run and you don't really have time to stop at a traditional restaurant, they have sandwiches and things like that. And you order what you want and the machine just kind of goes over, picks one up and drops it down to you. It's like that, only a lot bigger with a lot more stuff in it. So, so it's not that huge yet, but you understand the Legos-like mentality that we exist in with technology today. So if we have a little thing, we can bolt it onto another thing and make another thing bolt onto that, and pretty soon you have a big thing. Where this is going is grocery stores looking a lot more like an Amazon.com warehouse than they do today. Where this is going is that you're going to sit online, and you're going to be able to not only... <laughs> Just look stuff up on a website and order it. It's going to get to the point where you're able to move through aisles like a virtual reality video game and pick what you want and see what's there. Um, see what's available. See what inventory is in stock. Just as though you were there without having to individually look up your products. More of a, of, of a complete and total view, just like you get in a shopping experience. And you'll be able to pick everything that you want. And robots will go through the store and assemble your order. You'll already have paid for it. You'll pull up to the grocery store. It'll be put in your car for you, and you'll drive away and never walk in the door. Grocery stores want to do this, and they don't want to do this at the exact same time. They want to do this because it cuts an expense in employees. It's far more efficient. And there's a dramatic number of ways to upsell people in an online environment that are really more effective than an on-site environment in many ways. Okay. But when people go to grocery stores in particular, if they happen to go hungry, they get upsold a lot more just by the food all being in front of them. And you have all this merchandising work and all this science that's going to 100 years of science and exactly how to set up your store, how to frame things, where you put the cookies that the kids want at the kids' level and you put all the like the healthy stuff down lower or up high because the kids are going to be right in that zone where they want everything and grab it and throw it in the cart and what have you. But on the other side of it, there's just too much to be gained. There's too much to be gained. And it, what it will do is if you actually look at the grocery bill of the average person, a grocery list of the average person, 80% of what they buy any given trip, they buy every given trip. And what that means is that when you go to shop, you start out with basically, there's what you bought last week, take anything off you don't want, increase or decrease quantities. Boom. And then you say, I also want this, 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 and this. If you want to take a stroll through the, the store, you can do that too. 
and you, you just speed up your life and we eliminate jobs. We could probably cut the headcount in most grocery stores by 50 to 80 percent with this type of technology and it's coming. It, it's not just that either. They're going to get rid of cash registers. Cash registers are the bottleneck in a grocery store. And you'd be like, how could you possibly get rid of cash registers? It's going to get dramatically simple. It's going to get that when you put an item into your cart, it scans. That You'll just have a total. And they already have played with this. Back in the 90s, they played with things where people could scan their own groceries or had little scanners in the cart. And then that way they could see how much they were spending. And if they, they realized they had more money to spend, they could spend more money. Or if they'd gone over what they had budgeted, they could take some things out. And they knew what they, but they still rang it up at the, check, the checkout counter. Technology is getting to the point where it's going, it, it's not that you can't steal at all. It's that there'll be no more shoplifting than there already is, or there'll be less. Stores budget shoplifting into their plans. They, they would like it to be zero. They know they will never get to zero. Some people will always steal some things. But that what they're trying to get to is a point now, and the only place that it's going to have even a little bit of complication will be things like loose produce and stuff like that. Right? So, but it's going to get to the point where all you're going to do is you're going to go into the store. You're going to have bags that you're going to have to buy in advance, right? That are going to fit into the cart perfectly. You're going to just load stuff into your cart. Every time you put something in your cart, it's going to show up. And when you're done, you're going to hit a button to pay. And when you walk out the door, there'll be one final sweep that'll look for anything that's not supposed to be there. And it's probably the case that when you come in the door, you'll be swept with some type of, of, of technology that'll determine, like, do you have anything on you that they could mistake? I know you don't think they're going to do this. I know you say it's going to be buggy and whatever. But the, but the, the, the smartphone was one of the most buggy things on planet Earth when it first came out. And now it is one of the uh, most usable and user-friendly pieces of technology. This is all stuff that the technology development will solve. This is where it's going. You walk in the store, you load your shit, you leave. That'll be it. No bottlenecks. No bottlenecks. And there'll be, again, there'll be less shoplifting. There'll be less shoplifting because what'll happen is if you try to leave with something, you'll just get charged for it. We'll all have to dispute it if it wasn't real or whatever. Yeah, they don't care. They don't care. They'll refine that. They'll, they'll fix that as they go. But that's where this is going. Not kiosks, not online shopping as far as, as like a grocery or whatever. The, 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 the retail outlets that you actually physically go to to look at stuff, they're going to decimate the jobs in those. You're also going to have this type of a thing. Well, I know that I want this 80% of my groceries and I want to browse for the rest. So you'll be able to have basically all your stuff set aside for you. And you'll go get anything else like you weren't sure that you wanted to browse That'll get added up and you walk out. So you don't even have to collect that 80%. How do I know this stuff's coming? Because it just makes logical sense. I'm just looking at the progression of technology here. And you have to understand, if this is going to happen to grocery business, the restaurant business, there's not a sector. There's not an industry sector that's not going to be hit by this. The education system is going to get gutted. And it needs to. It needs to. But... You start thinking about all these sectors and how many people are employed in them. We are watching technology eliminate jobs right now at a rate that's never been seen before. Because in the past when technology eliminated jobs, there was always something else for people to go do next. We've kind of reached 
to the point where that's not going to work anymore. There's not a lot of things for people to go do next. Now, there's jobs. Millions and millions and millions of opportunities for people even 20 years from now. But there's more people than opportunities. And this puts society in a really weird area. Because you look at things like the welfare rolls and stuff like that and say, man, I mean, these people need to get off their butts and get a job. And right now I think there's very little excuse unless you're physically impaired for not getting off your ass and getting a job. None. There are help-wanted signs all over Dallas-Fort Worth. We don't want a job like that. Well, you know what? You might want a job like that if we didn't pay you to exist. But are we not going to get to a point where we, as a society, we have to start asking ourselves, well, if there are no jobs in a traditional sense, then how do we enable people to have a meaningful existence and earn a living, so to speak? Does something like paying people to do something make sense even if it's not a job. Now, you know me, I'm an anarchist. I want government to go away. But I also am a realist, and I'm going to tell you, it's not going to go away. Most people are status-minded today. They want government. If we, did, if we didn't have status living in this country, there wouldn't be so many HOAs. Okay? HOAs, for those who haven't heard me say this before, are people that go, gee, I just don't have enough government. I need more. That's what an HO is. It's, HOAs are, ex, are, are extensions of government designed to create further restrictions and infringement on the lives of others. Every single person that lives in an HOA wants more government if they do so by choice. Like some people go, I couldn't find anything else, so I settled for this. Okay, maybe. But if you want an HOA, if you think it's a good thing, you are a statist. You love government. You love telling other people how to live their lives. And because we know there are millions of these things today, we know that most people are of a mind of government. So government's going to continue. Government is going to continue to take money from people. They're going to steal it through taxation. They're going to steal it through what they call fees and licenses, etc., which are just other forms of taxation. And they're going to steal it through monetary creation in the form of inflation. That money is going to be taken by government anyway. It's going to be redistributed by government anyway. So does it make sense that we start figuring out meaningful things people can do and say if there is going to be what we would call a welfare payment, that you have to do something to get it? 20 hours of teaching children how to read, right? Or cleaning up the streets or, or what have you. I, I don't think it's a great idea, but I think it's a better idea than what we do now. And in, in a world where we have an ideal that we want to get to, but a reality of where we are, We have to be logical about how we bridge those gaps. So, you know, one of the things I've heard of that just, is just insane on some levels is the, the concept of full employment. Anybody that wants a job gets a job. Because I don't trust government to do it. But would it be any worse, would it be any worse than paying people not to work right now? I don't know that it would. Could we build a better society if... Anybody who wanted a job could have a job if we came up with things for them to do. There's lots of stuff to be done. What if people like me could have people come work for us and it didn't cost us any money? Like, I don't have the money to hire somebody, but if you had somebody to, to send me, I could give somebody four hours of work a week and somebody else could give them another four and so eventually they'd have 20 hours of work maybe with five different people. They'd work for me on Monday somewhere else and get all these different experiences and then figure out how to say, you know what, I want more than this. 
and with all that experience eventually create a new opportunity. I think that the opportunities for innovation and entrepreneurship are limitless. But I think the days of just finding a cut-and-paste type of job, the employment of the last 200 years are rapidly coming to an end, and we need a new way to adapt to that. And if we're going to have the system that we do, we might as well use it to the best means possible. Again, I would prefer that we just got rid of all this welfare crap. That would be my solution because then I think I think that people would find a solution for themselves. I think that's a far better solution. Cut it all off. Stop stealing people's money. Stop redistributing money. If you're going to have any kind of government program, it's only for the people that legitimately physically cannot work. And if, you know, I mean, if you can stand up and walk across the room, you can probably work. And fat is not a disability. So if you're too fat and we don't pay you to, to do nothing, eventually you'll get skinnier because you'll stop getting free food, right? So legitimate injuries to the point where people can't work, and then there should be programs for well, what can this person do? That that would be the the, the maximum I want. But if we're we're, we're not going to do that. Okay, you, I know those of you that are anarchists like myself are saying, God, he's talking blasphemy now. He's he's supporting government. I'm not. I'm, I'm making an honest assessment. The people of this nation and the people of the first world are not interested in what we're offering yet. That's why we are individuals who practice our own belief system on our own for now and demonstrate what's possible. Right. So since that's the case, what's the best thing for them to do with what they already have? To me... I I don't like saying this, to be very clear. I don't feel good about saying this. But I would rather say that if you're going to receive assistance, that we create a work program that anybody can be part of, not just people that qualify. If you want to make the least amount of money of any job period, you can be part of this program. The problem is it could become a, a, a method of, of indentured servitude. Because it would affect the free market so adversely, unless it was all for public interest. In other words, it wasn't to build houses. It was to do things like pick up trash or something. I mean, it's, it's almost impossible to, to argue the point that I'm trying to argue for. Because in the end, with the larger scheme, you know the evil result that we'll have. But would it be less evil than paying someone to put on weight and lay on a couch? And I, I can't see how it's worse than that. Other than it could really screw up the free market, which is also just about to be completely screwed up by technology anyway. It's an interesting conundrum. What if you could only do it for a period of time? Let's say that you had this, this um, opportunity for full employment. And anybody that wanted a job could get a job. And there was no welfare. We said welfare is gone. There's no welfare. There's no nothing. I mean, Social Security, self-funding, if it was actually run legitimately, so we're not talking about that. We're not talking about true disability. Somebody that, you know, cracks their skull open and can barely, you know, figure out three words, there's still a program for that. But if you can function and do anything and you want assistance, the only way to get it is to do some sort of work. And you say that you can only do that for two years. At that point, you have to find something meaningful to do that somebody will voluntarily pay you for. That might be meeting in the middle in a way that would actually work. The problem is you know what government would do with it. I'm going to have to let this one go soon, but if you did that, then they say, oh, these poor people, just like unemployment, oh, wait, 99 weeks is not enough, right? 
So they would like it was an extension, and like, it's so easy for them to spend money when it's not theirs. I mean, I don't think there should be taxes. Just to be clear here at the end, I think tax is theft. But if the theft's going to exist and the theft is going to pay for things, what if it at least paid for things that got us somewhere? It might be worse in a weird way. It would further it's legitimize the theft. Um, we just had our permit. The things you think about event, when we had a bunch of people come up there. Evil uh, this comes from Ard. Ard says, hey, hey Jack, at the Perma Ethos event, we used a rogue hoe to even out the swale. Those particular models have a notch on the back, which you said helps in emptying out your pickup truck on the ridges of the bedliner. I'm having a hard time finding a specific model. Do you know where they sell them? Thanks, Ard. I don't really know who Rogue resells through, though I do think they're available on Amazon. But before I get the model for you, um, let me just tell you, if you don't own a Rogue hoe and you do homesteading on anything other than perfectly manicured garden beds, if you actually deal with tough, harsh, hard soils and environments, there is no tool, the end infinity, that as far as a manual, non-powered tool, that is a better tool for what you're trying to do than the rogue hoe. The rogue hoe makes every other hoe look like what it is, junk. It is built like a tank. They were originally built for the firefighting, forest firefighting industry and for putting in like trails, like, like woodland trails and, and, and what have you. They are absolutely phenomenal. As far as the one that I own and recommend is like, if you're going to only get one, which one would I recommend? It is uh, the 70HR54. The 70HR54. It's basically a hoe on one side and a, a really tough five-tong rake on the other. And there's there is like if you turn it sideways, so you're using the alternate edge. The, the edge doesn't really look like it's intended for anything. Kind of a V notch in it. And with the ribs of a pickup truck, when you turn it that way, you're pulling like compost or mulch out of the back of a pickup truck. It just seems to do a better job of dragging it out of the truck. And I've I've used very little shovel or fork action to unload my pickup truck for several years since finding the Rogue Ho. Pulling the uh, the garden cart behind the tractor up underneath it or a wheelbarrow right up to the tailgate and just pulling it off with the hoe is so much more efficient. But these tools are awesome. Again, I don't know who resells them, and maybe there's a lot of times manufacturers actually sell full retail on their site, and then they discount their wholesale business enough that their resellers can sell for a little less money than they do. These are not cheap, but they're not a tool you buy more than once. The uh, the 70HR54 is $69.95. If you buy it and don't leave it out to rust and take care of it, and as the handle, you know, the finish words off the handle, you rub it with linseed oil, etc., it will probably outlive you. The tool will outlive you. Whether the handle does or not is up to how you take care of it, and replacing a handle is not a big deal. They also have the F70HR, which is $74.95, and has a fiberglass handle, uh, thereby changing the whole wood breakdown thing. I actually prefer, when you're talking good, hard, solid hickory handles like this stuff has on it, um, the, the wooden handle over fiberglass. I really do. I like the texture, the feel, and, and I actually think that they're less susceptible long-term to damage when properly cared for. I've seen fiberglass handles eventually start to splinter and things like that, and, and I, I actually shattered a fiberglass handle on a sledgehammer here beating on rock. There was people here at one of the events that saw it happen and went, I don't understand how that happens to hard rocks, man. Um, so I like good solid wooden handle. These things are a beast. They, they have some real weight to them. 
And the, the, the really heavy-duty ones you'll find at roco.com. You go to the Firefighter Tools one. Um, they also have some really light-rate hose that you'll see uh, under garden hose with unique shapes. Really, really nice, able to be sharpened. And these are more for your, your light-duty work, but they are still so much tougher than anything you're going to get at Home Depot and Lowe's. And they're purpose-built, different shapes and edges, uh, including light rakes and things like that. Again, when I say light, I'm comparing it to their heavy-duty equipment. So you might want to check out Roco. I'll put a link straight to the firefighters uh, section today. And again, if you go down about halfway down, you'll see basically the 70HR54, which is basically two tools combined. They have the Highlander and the 115FR, and it's basically you put the rake of one and the hoe of the other onto one tool. And I, I can't see any reason to get most of the other tools um, other than there's one called the 55HXH, the Beast. Uh, and that might have some applications as well for some sites. So that link will be in the show notes. But if you have not tried a Roco yet uh, and you want to make an investment in what I believe to be the finest um, equipment you can use for your homesteading, give them a shot. And if you're unhappy with it, let me know. I'll probably buy the damn thing off you because I need more of them. Uh, this next question comes to me from uh, Ben. Ben says, I've heard you mention this phenomenon before, thoughts, and it's an article um, at IFL Science, and it's titled, Don't Run Out and Start Screaming the, the Sky is Falling It, Chicken Littles, um, Earth's sixth mass, Earth six mass extinction has begun. New study confirms. Uh, let me read this to you. Um, We are currently witnessing the start of a mass extinction event, the likes of which have not been seen on Earth for the last 65 million years. This is an alarming finding of a new study published by the journal uh, Science Advances. The research was designed to determine how human actions over the past 500 years have affected extinction rates of vertebrates, mammals, fish, birds, reptiles, and amphibians. It found a clear signal of elevated species loss, which markedly accelerated over the past couple hundred years such that life on Earth is embarking on its sixth great extinction event in a 3.5 billion year history. The latest research was conducted by an international team led by Geraldo Cerbalos of the National Autonomous University of Mexico. <laughs> National Autonomous University. Okay, anyway. Measuring extinction rates is notoriously hard. Recently, I reported on some of the friendly or clever ways such as rates have been estimated. These studies include producing profoundly worrying results. However, there is always risk of such work overestimates uh, modern extinction rates because they need to make a number of assumptions given a very limited data available. Sabalos and his team wanted to put a floor on these numbers to establish extinction rates for species that were very conservative with the understanding that whatever the rate of species loss has actually been, it could not be lower. So this is like the best-case estimate they're doing here. This makes their findings even more significant because even with such conservative estimates, they find extinction rates are much, much higher than the background rate of extinction, the rate of species loss in the absence of any human impacts. Here again, they err to the sign of caution. A number of studies have attempted to estimate the background rate of extinction. These have produced upper values uh, about one out of every million species being lost each year. Using recent work by co 
co-author Anthony Barnosky, they effectively double this background rate, so assume that two of every million species will disappear throughout natural causes each year. This should mean that differences between the background and human-driven extinction rates will be smaller, but they find the magnitude of more recent extinction is so great to effectively swamp any natural processes. Uh, you can read the rest of this if you want to on your own. I'm just going to jump to the conclusion. Well, the relationship between species diversity and ecosystem function is very complex and not well understood. There are many, there may be gradual reversible decreases in function with decreased biodiversity. There may be effectively no change until a tipping point occurs. The analogy here is popping out rivets on a plane's wing. The aircraft will fly unimpaired if a few rivets are removed here and there, but continue to remove rivets is to remove the system closer to catastrophic failure. The latest research tells us what we already knew. Humans have, in the space of a few centuries, swung a wrecking ball through the Earth's biosphere, liquidating biodiversity to produce products and services as an endpoint. Science is starting to sketch out what that endpoint could look like, but it cannot tell us why to stop before we reach it. In regard to the Earth as nothing more than a source of resources and a sink for our pollution, if we value other species only in terms of what they provide for us, then we will continue to unpick the fabric of life. Remove further rivets from the spaceship Earth, this is not only increases the risk that it will cease to function the ways that we and future generations will depend on, but only can reduce the complexity and beauty of our home in the cosmos. I don't disagree with much of this, and the guy does take a pretty conservative approach to a pretty conservative study. So let me explain something, though, that I, I have a problem with, and that's the analogy of an airplane and taking rivets out of the wings. An airplane is a non-living mechanical device being powered by an engine and flying through the air. If I pull a couple of rivets out of an airplane wing, yes, the plane still keeps going. If I pull enough wing uh, rivets out, eventually you get a small failure that starts to become a larger failure as the, the, the material starts to peel up and it actually becomes cascading, like a dam going over. It's a little trickle to a bigger trickle to a bigger trickle to a complete catastrophic failure. That's the case. But what we're doing to the planet is similar to that, but different in that it's a living organism. And imagine it more accurately this way. If you're standing in front of me, and I take a really perfectly designed razor blade, so that I can only cut... Uh, about an eighth of an inch deep into your body. And I have enough anatomical knowledge that I'm not going to nick any really major blood vessels. Like paper cut is what I'm going to do to you. But very effective cuts. And I just swipe it across the, your forearm. And it makes a little cut. It hurts. Sucks. And it does what it does. Okay. If I keep doing that long enough, I can create enough of a problem that either from blood loss sanguation, right? Or from other problems that I cause between stress and infection and lowered resistance and all that. I can kill you with a thousand paper cuts or a million paper cuts. So what is the number to kill you? Here's the, where this changes. If that number is, let's say, 10,000, but I cut you a hundred times today, and I wait a year before I do another hundred, and a year before I do another hundred, And a year before I do another hundred, in your lifetime, I never reach the number possibly that, that are necessary to kill you. And since your body has time to heal in the interim and adapt, and you might also decide like to do something a little bit different, like not come back and get cut again. You might adapt to the scenario if you're given more time. 
This is much more like what we're doing to the earth, except we're probably doing a thousand cuts a year instead of a hundred. Spread out over a year. Well, that's not a species number. That's just an anatomical, how to make my, my analogy better than theirs with the airplane. This is not a mechanical device. This is a biological organism with millions and millions of interconnections. So I don't think it's as precarious as that analogy would lead you to believe, though I do think we're doing immense harm to our planet. How much so, I don't know. Is it possible that we are looking at the 6X extinction event right now, like it's already begun? Yes. Is it possible that we've caused it? Yes. Is it possible that it was going to happen anyway and we've accelerated it and made it worse? Yes. Is it possible that even if we weren't here, it would still be happening, it would just look differently? Yes. Which one is true? I don't know. I don't know. And none of these scientists studying this know either. And understand with science, pure science would be a wonderful thing if it existed. It doesn't. Science is fueled by money today, and money comes from getting results that the people that fund the study want to see. More than you would care to admit or believe. And this is in all things. So if I send you out to do something, and I want a specific result, and you getting your next grant depends on me getting the result I want, even if you do your best to follow the scientific methodology, sooner or later human nature takes over and certain things, uh, perception bias and stuff like that take over. But this one seems pretty legit. Now here's the bigger issue. What does it mean to us? Let's say that the absolute assertion that the 6X, big 6X has begun. And there is going to be this radical extinction of species and possibly even human beings on planet Earth. If that's true, I still think this is a million-year process, or at least a 100,000-year process. These extinction events, we have such a microwave mentality in our, 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 our mindset today, and the, you know, the, the, the asteroid theory with the T-Rex, and the asteroid hit, and then the T-Rex fell over, and everybody died, and you know, it was all at once. And that event may or may not have happened. You know, there's things like the KT boundary that we can look at to tell us whether or not that event happened the way that we think that it happened in the time that we think that it happened. And it may or may not have. But there, if there's, this is six, and let's say that was one of the other five, there's four more. And none of them appear to be like this catastrophic, you know, comet hitting the planet or something like that. They all seem to be things that naturally were triggered. And none of them seem to have happened like that. There's like pulling threads out of a rug, but it's a rug that can heal itself, but eventually the threads get pulled faster than the rug can heal itself, and eventually it gets stripped down to its basis, and then it has to be completely rebuilt, and it looks totally different. And if you believe the Earth is a living being, which some people do, then maybe that's part of the Earth's evolution. I mean, the, the planet looks dramatically different today than it did, you know, in, you know, the time that we had T-Rexes wandering around in every way you can conceive of. Not just that we're not here, there's not buildings, etc. I mean, you would not know what planet you were on, likely, if somebody dumped you off, uh, like Land of the Lost, for those of you that are old enough to remember that show, in the in the time period that that was, you would think you would be put on some kind of an alien planet. Especially if nobody had ever told you what a dinosaur was. Right? If you had never heard of or seen Jurassic Park and things like it, and you had never been told of dinosaurs, if you just grew up with this was the knowledge of what Earth looks like, and somehow through the magic of, you know, Doctor Whoism or whatever, you were transported through time and ended up in the, the late Cretaceous period or something like that, 
you'd look around and go, I must be on a foreign planet. So this is a cycle this planet's been through before, long before we did anything. That doesn't mean that we can't make it happen. In other words, you have to look at things without a definitive yes or no when you get into something this with this many variables. For instance, you are going to die. You are absolutely, at some point, going to die. So am I. We are all humans. We are all mortal. And no matter what you believe about spirit or soul or whatever, your mortal being will cease at some point. And when that happens, you'll be dead. Obvious. Now, that means that I can't be blamed for your death because you're going to die. So it's not like what I did killed you, but I can do something to kill you. I could stab you in the head with a knife. You might die from that. I could wound you in such a way that maybe two years later you die from complications and problems and things like that that would have never occurred had I not wounded you. So just because you can die without my involvement doesn't mean that my involvement can't lead to your death. That's how these extinction events are. Just because the planet might go through an extinction event with human beings doesn't mean that we couldn't cause or accelerate or speed one up. Everybody likes to get all in a wad about things like the, 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 the so-and-so black wine or rhino is extinct or whatever. I, see, that actually doesn't disturb me that much. Like, like, like there's some big difference between today and yesterday when like the last couple of them fell over and died. I'm not belittling that impact, but that, like we, that writing's been on the wall. That's a big animal. And there's a lot of other animals that fill that animal's niche. And we have other rhinos that, even though they're not the same species, could easily be reintroduced. The elk was all over this country. There were elk in Pennsylvania, okay? And they're not there. Well, actually, there are some that have been reintroduced, but they haven't been reintroduced to the level they were. They were a different elk. The species of elk that lived in the eastern United States is gone forever. But we can take Rocky Mountain elk and reintroduce them into the eastern United States. The reason it's not done more, the reason there's not elk everywhere in the eastern United States anymore, is because we've altered... Their terrain, right? They can't migrate. There was not enough open spaces. It's, it's not just shooting them that did that. But but these big animals can be reintroduced and other things can be substituted for them. What scares the shit out of me is the loss of microbes and fungi. We have no idea the cascade that can occur from that. We are just now beginning to even understand something as simple, and I do say simple, as soil biology. How plants lived without us. How they reproduced without us. How they didn't need fertilizer. It wasn't just because leaves fell on the ground and made mulch. There was an entire process that we've undone. And we've been undoing it for 10,000 years. Without knowing what the hell we were doing. So I'm not worried that we're all going to die in the next 10 years because of 6X. And I think if you're worried about that, that you need to go get some professional counseling because you have an irrational fear that's going to screw up your life. You are in need of a licensed professional counselor to help you withdraw your head from your ass, if, if that's what you're worried about. There, there are young people at Permaculture Voices saying, within 20 years, man, that when they're pointing at the San Diego Harbor, that water's going to be up here in this hotel. Don't people understand that? Those people need mental counseling. Of course, they believe in that's from global warming, right? The, the most drastic, you know, beliefs 
of, of the people that everybody trusts are nowhere near that. When, when people have that much of an irrational fear, I think the only thing that can help them is professional counseling. But if you're concerned about the future of the planet from this, I think it's a legitimate concern. So, what, but then the question is, what do we do about it? My, my answer to that is that human beings can be regenerative, specifically at the regional level, and we be, need to be reestablishing biological systems. That's, that's what we need to do to address this. Will it fix it? No way to know. There's no way to know. But, we can do better than we're doing right now. There's no doubt about that. So my take on this is it probably doesn't matter who's right. It probably doesn't matter who's right about it. It's not something to sit around and worry about. And the problems are such that the solution is the same And if this is true, it may not be enough, but there's no way to know. So we should follow through with good solutions. Restoring biology, fixing the hydrology of reasons, reestablishing species diversity. We can't bring back what's gone, but we can make more diverse systems. There's, here's the bugaboo in this, and bug is an interesting word to use for it. It is possible that somewhere in the line of screwing with all this, that... We've started a cascade that will eventually re release a virus or a toxin that will wipe out 10%, 20%, or 100% of people. A, a disease. A, some sort of a bacteria or a virus that would have not come to a head, would have been kept in check by natural systems, as it has been for, for millions of years, could eventually rear its head. The, the, the most likely thing to create an extinction-level event for human beings on this planet in the next thousand years is a disease. And it could be linked to this. There's a lot of people that believe that more than a, an asteroid, it was a disease that wiped out the dinosaurs. And it does a better job of explaining like why we still have things like crocodiles and alligators uh, than, an, than an asteroid does. It really does. I'm not saying that's what happened. I don't know. But so... So this is one of those things that could or could not be true, but it doesn't. It, it does not exist in your circle of influence. It exists in your circle of concern, and you should probably push it way to the edge of the bubble of concern, and not let it consume your life. Because you can't. If that's what's. If that's what's the future, you can't prep for that. You can't prep for extinction of eighty percent of life on Earth. If you think you can, you don't understand what that that, that means. Okay, you can't prep for a full earth reboot but i think the difference so humans are the problem and what do we learn from permaculture the problem is the solution the difference this time is as far as we know scientology aside this is the first time the earth has faced this possibility or this probability might be a better word where there's a being on the planet that can recognize it and consciously adapt to it that's never been done before there's never been a creature that we know of on this planet could say you know what here's an illness let's develop an antibody or a, a, a vaccine for it there's never been a creature that can say we're really destroying our own habitat let's change our pattern to restore the habitat as much as we, we have this affinity and love for all things you know uh, natural animals are pretty destructive in their environments without something to murder them 
like top predators, they'll defoliate and deforest entire continents and be their own demise. I'm not saying human beings will use the wisdom that we have to cut this off. But I'm saying that we have the ability to. We have the potential to. So humanity might end up being this planet's salvation if we choose to be. Anyway, let's take another one. This next one is a follow-up from last week. It's from Samson. Samson says, Details. I was wondering, I was listening to today's call in show, and a young man asked about soil fertility. You replied, tons of great information on compost, compost tea, mulch, mulch inoculated with fungus. Partway through, you mentioned how new trees may not be prepared to thrive in their new environment, and how rootstock will often expand during the tree's dormant stage and really take off during uh, the next above ground growth cycle. Question It's my understanding that each aspect of the plant's growth. Roots, stem, leaves, flowers, fruits are powered by major nutrients, nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus, uh, a.k.a. NPK. Could you explain and describe how each of these nutrient groups aids each plant's major growth needs? It's a little bit academic for me. That's an Elaine Ingham question, right? But here's the heart of the question is, well, why the heck does this tree that does really crappy this year come bang on into spring next year and do much better? There's a lot of things and a lot of reasons that that would be at play. But understand what a tree does, okay, above ground with the leaves throughout its cycle. It produces leaves. These leaves are solar collectors. They use photosynthesis to produce energy and provide energy for the plant. For that energy to be synthesized and used, the plant needs certain nutrients and minerals, etc., from the ground. It takes that up from the ground. Now, we might put that tree on welfare. If it's looking really, really sick, we might get something like I talked about last week, like garret juice, and, and spray the leaves with that. That'll help keep pests from over-attacking it. That'll get some of those nutrients, because it's like garret juice is one, 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 one nitrogen, one potassium, one phosphorus, into the plant through foliar feeding, right? So it'll get some. It's basically putting it on welfare to get it through a, a real welfare program, right? It's actually for the plant's best interest. It's not to stay there forever. It's like it's summer. The plant's going to die without this. We put it on life support, and we try to do the best we can for it. It gets into its fall cycle. When it gets into its fall cycle, there are sugars and nutrients, etc., stored in the leaves and the stems of the plant. And the plant goes to sleep, assuming it's a deciduous plant. And it goes, I made it. I could finally sleep. And it dumps all of that down into the roots. And then the roots, as they get toward the spring, realize, okay, this tree above me is going to need to grow. And they start expanding. And they start going, they take that reserve energy, they put it into the root system. The tree now has a better root system. Okay? You come into spring and it's a, most, a much more gentle process. It hasn't been dug up out of the ground, had the roots pruned off, it's shoved in the ground a little bit too late in the summer or the spring and, all, and, and get, be hit with heat before it was even fully leafed out. It's had a full good night's sleep. So even if the soil biology is the same, It's better able to reach what it needs. It's been in the ground longer. It's had more opportunity to interact with the beneficial microbes and fungi that are in that soil. And hopefully you've been building that soil as well. So this is the thing. Trees need nowhere near the level of fertilizer that we've been led to believe. If they did, you wouldn't have forests all over the planet. Trees are actually dramatically efficient 
at growing in some of the most denuded poor soils you can find. They're actually more adversely affected by not having a big enough root system, not being able to get to enough nutrients from them, have a large enough root system, uh, or being way too wet or way too dry. If you've ever planted a tree in a sandbox to hold it for a season and saw what a tree can do in sand, that's pretty impressive. There's not a lot of life in the sand. But that big, healthy tree needs that real healthy biology. And the tree will actually help establish that biology. So that's another thing that's happened. We plant a tree early in the year. It makes it through the fall, even though it was kind of sick through that year. It had an opportunity to start creating this life web around itself. It's, it, it may be not putting out all the exudates that it needs to, or the amount of exudates it needs to, but it put out some. It got some colonization of bacteria and fungi around it, and it's much better prepared to go into next year. This is why, if you have the choice, it is much better to plant a tree that's about to go dormant or is dormant in early fall than early spring. The, the, that gives the tree the full time to kind of heal in and do the best for itself. And so that's kind of the solution. But how exactly do trees use the three primary nutrients for each of their growth cycles? I think that's a boring academic question. It doesn't really pertain to uh, this show. It, it's kind of, yeah, like everybody would be turning me off if I tried to go into that level of detail. And I can only go so deep into it because, frankly, I only care so much. But the big fuel in growth, okay, so the, the most important one there is nitrogen. For when you, when you go out and you look at a tree in the spring and you see that new growth, like it was dormant and then that new green stem comes up, it's still a softwood, and that's four, five, six inches of growth in one season on that new, that new stem or branch or whatever and the leaves on it, that's all nitrogen that fuels that growth. That's, that's not the only thing that it needs, but It is the it is what it has to have to grow like that. So that's when you start understanding how incredibly resilient trees are when you plant trees in a place with low nitrogen and they're not nitrogen fixing trees. And once they get established, they still are able to put on that growth without an input of nitrogen. That's because there's massive amounts of nitrogen in the shittiest soil. It's about how available to the plant that it is. When, when you look at phosphorus deficiencies, usually if you see a purple leaf, that doesn't mean there's not enough phosphorus there. That means the tree's not getting it. You see purple, or the plant purple, it's, unless it's supposed to be purple, you know, like purple kohlrabi. Uh, but if, if you have a purple plant, it's not supposed to be purple. That's probably phosphorus. If you have a nitrogen deficiency, it'll go from anything from dying, it just can't get any nitrogen at all, uh, to being brown, to being yellow. And most plants that you see that have a nitrogen deficiency that's a moderate nitrogen deficiency, a lot of people look at them and go, that plant's fine. But with the trained eye, you just go, that's not as green as vibrant as it's supposed to be. It's just not. And unless something's happening, like a dog's peeing on it or something like that, when you just, like, it's not as green as it should be, you need to give the tree a little bit of therapy one way or another. You need to improve the biology so it can get more of its own nitrogen or give it some sort of an organic form of nitrogen. So hopefully that answers the crux of your actual question, because I'm not going to give a biochemistry lesson on the NPK ratio and what exactly all of them do. If you want to know that, just use Google for that one. Uh, let me read an article for you. Um, this is on ODR, Russian Beyond. Anarchism, Russian style. 
The village of Kolinovo has a reputation for independent-mindedness and upsetting the authorities. Now they've created their own currency, the Koloni. The story of a Russian farmer, Mikhail Shablakenkov, I'm just making it up because I can't pronounce it, and his self-made money has become something of a sensation of late and has long traveled beyond the confines of Kolinovo, a village where he lives. The Moscow... Uh, prosecutor's office is now investigating Shlopikovnov's currency named the Colony after his village and its, and its creator on suspicion of infringing on the state's monopoly issuing currency. A remote and tiny village, Kolonovo, lies at the edge of a small road just off a highway leading west out of the Russian capital. And Kolonovo would have remained remote, tiny, and unknown if it wasn't for the periodic scandal about how the village's elderly residents have chased the local administration out of town. The campaign to save the village hospital, the self-organized firefighting service, or the ban on public officials entering the village without a document testifying to their mental health and a recent fluography test for tuberculosis. But now residents of Kolnovo have devised their own currency and in doing so have written themselves into a wider history, a history of alternative currency and anarchism. With dubious honor of being Russia's leading anarchist farmer, Mikhail Slipkovnov has was a successful entrepreneur before he moved to Kolonovo. After a series of unsuccessful operations for cancer in 2004, however, doctors told Shlopkovnov he had three months to live. And Shlopkovnov decided that if he was going to die, he'd die in the countryside. This existential downshifting did not help Shlopkovnov find peace. Instead, the move to Colonel prompted Shlopkov to become something of a rebel. This kind of story usually takes place in reverse. A former activist having come of age... Uh, and to his or her sense, moves to the countryside in order to escape the madness of city life. After living for a while in Kolochnovo, uh, though, Shlopkovnov began to invest his entrepreneurial talents in what he understands by anarchism. For instance, take Kolovno's sapling nursery, a form of ecological activism in a business vital to the health of Moscow region. The forests here suffered huge fires in 2010 and after, and have been punished by an epidemic of insects which feed on the trees bark. But now Shlokovnov and his comrades have gone too far, for authorities, that is. They have started issuing their own promissory notes, 20,000 of them. And with his charisma and popularity, Shlokovnov couldn't help but provoke the powers that be. After the, all the question on everybody's lips, in the break room at work, hanging out with friends or chatting on the Internet, is the exchange rate. So one can understand Russia's takes concern for its currency monopoly as well as the press and public reaction to Colony. Minimize, minimize interactions with the state, develop mutually beneficial relationships at good old-fashioned altruism, helping the less well-off and orphans. This is anarchism, Kolozhno style. This is not total anarchy, however. Shlopkovnov is paying his workers in rubles and paying employer taxes. Systems of exchange. We're used to measuring so much in terms of money, it's hard to think of life without it. But there are a large variety of currency systems which depart from the fiat system, that is money issued by government, time banks, cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin being the most famous, local currencies and currencies with return percentage 
or planned inflation, good exchange commodities such as LETs or local exchange trading systems, and Internet exchange communities. The range of different forms of economic relations is striking. According to Maxim Multov, an econ economist who specializes in local currencies, there are more than 4,000 local economic systems in the world. In essence, any group which is united by common interests and mutual trust can create its own money or its own non-monetary system of exchange with only a few simple skills. It's a question of how united the group is. That is the deciding factor. I want to skip this because it's kind of long for a bit. Actually, what I mean is I want to uh, slip over to another article on the same thing. This is on M2 New Zealand. I just want to, real quick, before I give my analysis, talk about what actually backs this currency. Um, so I'm going to read uh, a couple paragraphs from this article. Russian farmer creates his own inflation-proof currency. Mikhail Shapkovnov, a uh, farmer in a Russian village called Kolonovo, has landed himself in trouble with Russian prosecutors who say his currency, the Kolio, named in honor of the village, does not operate legally under law and should be destroyed. The money is one-sided, with a tree that comes in nominations from 1, 3, 5, 10, 25, and 50 colones. The statement on the note says... This note is the property of the Klonovo exchequer. It does not undergo inflation, deflation, stag, uh, stagnation, or other uh, falsifications. It is not a means of enrichment or speculation. It is supported by the resources of Klonovo, or maybe it's a fake. And then it says the following quote, A goose is a goose in spring. He is a goose in autumn. This isn't the same with your ruble. The monopoly money is used as a bartering tool between himself and other locals. For instance, a friend gave him a tank of fuel for to lift, uh, 20 colonos, who will at some point, uh, and cash in 50 colonos for a goose and chicken eggs. The $8,000 colonial has been produced, have been produced and valued by Shafamnov as being worth around one and a half tons of potatoes. Um, so they're, they're basing this on things like the value of a goose. Uh, or the value of a certain number of potatoes. In other words, those things have an intrinsic worth to people. We all know what a goose is. We know how much meat it produces, how much fat it produces, how many eggs it produces. We all know what a potato is. It can be measured in a caloric yield. And we have just as much need for goose or potato today as we did a hundred years ago when we look at it as a food or a commodity. And it takes the same amount of inputs to make a goose today as it did a hundred years ago. It, it, money is an illusion that these things, these commodities are real. My, my bigger thing here is a, a couple things. Number one, um, this individual has a unique problem. This, this town has a unique problem because it's Russia. It's not the United States. And contrary to what maybe RT has tried to tell you, or, you know, Russia Today television has tried to tell you that uh, Russia is, is not as free a nation as the United States in many ways. And in many other ways, they may be more free than us. But they have a little more tendency to crack down pretty hard with the violence of the state than we do in certain areas. The next thing is that unlike the United States, this is actually illegal in Russia. There, there, there's nothing illegal about Bitcoin in the United States. There's nothing illegal about American open exchange currency. There's nothing illegal about the Ithaca Hour system. And if you and your buddies want to start, start up the, the John Bo Jim Bob uh, currency exchange, there's nothing illegal about that in the United States. There's nothing in the legal tender law or any other U.S. law or code, with maybe some exceptions on some local levels of some idiots to try to fight back against Bitcoin, but the federal state level that makes it illegal for you to create your own money and do business with it. What tax law says is any exchange or uh, things that go on with that are considered barter and need to be converted to dollar value and you have to pay taxes on it. 
but the reason they don't like it is they can't really know whether you did that right or not. Okay? In fact, the more uh, disconnected from a central system, the harder that is to do. It's actually really easy to say, well, you, you bought something with a Bitcoin, then you sold something for a Bitcoin. We know what your transactions are because we can look at the Bitcoin exchange rate. There's actually an exchange rate from Bitcoins to dollars. But these things don't have an exchange to dollars. the colonies or whatever the hell they call them, right? Um, so if we get out of dollars, then what was the value of that exchange? So they actually, I think the government would rather see these exchanges be far more successful, far larger than rather than being far more smaller and far more distributed. So the best way to get over on demand, so to speak, with them is to form one that works in your county or your city or your town, like this, this group did. But in our country, there's nothing illegal about it yet. It doesn't mean the government won't make it illegal. But in, in Russia, there is a very clear law that says this is illegal. So, then, But then now you have to enforce it. You see, if they go attack this one guy and throw him in a gulag or something, it's not going to make this go away. This is a whole town. This is not something one man did. He's just kind of a, a, a well-known person from this town. Think about what this town's doing. Uh, far more than just currency creation. Oh, you want to send a, a, a government official to our town to see how we're doing things? Yeah, we have to see that they've been mentally evaluated first. That they're not a psychopath. You're, you're sending somebody here with the authority of the state. We just want to make sure they're not frigging crazy. So you can talk to a doctor, get them sign your note, and you're allowed in. It sounds like these people know more about liberty than we do, doesn't it? Seriously? So I think it's a good model for ways that you can have civil disobedience that's organized enough and structured enough that it makes it harder, not easier, for the state to attack it. I'd like to see more things like this. The more places they're done and the more they're done successfully, the harder it gets to fight back against them. This is you know, a liberation permaculture model, a la Toby Hemingway. It's very, very interesting. I'd like your thoughts on this. How could things like this be done more wide-scale but even more decentralized? And hopefully Jeff Lawton will have a chance to get uh, an answer in for his question this week for the expert council call on Friday because I've asked him about this very subject, about specifically let's. There was a term in there in that one article that you may not have slipped over if you're not a permaculturist, but let's are basically community money. And it's a very core part of the 14th chapter of the Permaculture Manual that basically if we all live and work together, not necessarily on like a, a farm together, but this is our town. We'll call it Jackville just for the hell of it. We all live in Jackville. And uh, let's not call it Jackville. Let's, let's call it uh, Prepperville. We all live in Prepperville. And uh, you, me, and all other 100,000 members of this audience, but we'll shrink the audience down to a couple hundred people to make it a little bit more understandable. And we all live in Prepperville, and I know you, and you know me, and we all know each other, and we decide that there's certain things that we all can do. Um, I can produce duck eggs, you can paint houses, the guy across the street cuts hair, things like that, that we should have our own financial system that doesn't compete with the national system. It simply exists apart from it. Like, we don't need you for this. We just don't need you for this. Go away. Whenever we're doing business that requires us to do business in your world, and for instance, paying my employees or whatever, then we'll use dollars. But when Joe paints my house, and I don't, he doesn't need duck eggs. Joe doesn't need duck eggs when he paints my house. And I would have to give him a lot of duck eggs to paint my house, right? But I just say, you know what, how about we start with one room, 
and it would be the equivalent of uh, 20 dozen duck eggs to paint my one room. And Joe's okay with that, but he doesn't want the eggs. Well, if we have a currency that's locally exchanged between us that would be able to buy, if, if anybody wanted to, about 20 dozen duck eggs from me with it, Why shouldn't we use that currency? Why should we, why should we use dollars? That's a, that's a totally different way to think about this. I want you to try to answer that question for me if you think this is a crazy radical idea. What, what is there to gain for us if Joe knows I can take these uh, prepper notes and I can go over to Tom's and Tom cuts hair and Joe can get his hair cut and he can get his two kids' hair cut and he can get his wife's hair cut and still have a little bit of that prepper, prepper uh, currency left over to go down the road and buy, oh, I don't know, uh, some apples from Frank. So he does that. Now, Frank decides, you know what, I need duck eggs. So Frank comes down to my place and, get, and says, I need two dozen duck eggs, and he gives me the prepper notes, and I give him the duck eggs. What is there to gain from us by using dollars there? All that does is subject our currency to the control of the government and the banks. There's actually no good reason for us not to do this other than it's complicated and people aren't familiar with it. It's about, but once you get a town to do it, why wouldn't you do it? What good is there? And, and does the government really have, not a legal case, but does the government really have a moral case to get in the way of it? I don't think they do. And I think, I think that as important as it is, like, there's actually some really exciting things in that first article. You might want to read the rest of it for yourself. There's a link in the show notes about the things that, that town is doing to tell the government of the, of the country, you're not going to tell us what to do. They're actually practicing what you would call the art of not being governed. They're sending self-direction and self-government and not letting an outside force interfere with them as much as possible and as much as they can get away with in a draconian state. Okay? They seem to have a little more balls than we do, but I'm telling you what. You want people with a spine. You go check out people in the countryside of Russia. These guys are tough people. They've, they've, they've lived a much tougher life than we have, guys. I mean, USA number one. Raw toughness of the average person? Russians are tougher than we are. They're certainly tougher than our teacup kids. There's no teacup kids in the Russian uh, countryside. If you rounded up 20 kids at random, from the schools in this country today, and 20 kids from the Russian countryside, and put them in a rumble, the Russians would clean our clock time and time again. They really would. And some of you that don't think so, you haven't dealt with people from that part of the world. You don't know what I'm talking about. You've got to trust me here. But they have this, 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 this gumption to stand up like this. Why can't we do more of it? Why shouldn't we do more of it? I can't come up with a good reason why we shouldn't. I certainly can't see why if you have the ability to create a local exchange that you wouldn't be better off by doing so. And the fact that other people have done it means that it's possible. And so while there's some other things, like whether or not to let an official into the town, I love it. Sorry you can't come in. Do you have your note from your psychiatrist? You don't? Oh, we don't know that doctor. Here, here's two doctors you can go to. Pick one and go get a letter that says you're like that kind of stuff's awesome. But the reason the currency is so important, it is the primary means of control of a society. If you give me control of a country's money, I don't need, I don't need to be an elected official. I don't need to pass a law. I have them by the short hairs. And it's also the biggest illusion that only government can do this. 
Every time someone does it, it starts to shatter the illusion. Guys, we live in a hall full of mirrors. And sometimes when you break one mirror, it's enough to reveal all the other mirrors. And I think we're getting close to a time where society is ready for a shift toward more freedom and liberty. They're never going to give it to you. You're going to have to take it. This is one example of how you might do that. Anyway, with that, I'm going to wrap up for today. I hope you enjoyed today's show. I'll be uh, back tomorrow with a show on an individual standalone subject. I think we have an interview lined up for either Wednesday or Thursday this week. I'm not sure which one it is. We might have two interviews this week. I'm not sure on that. Uh, and then Friday, of course, we will have the expert counsel call. Thursday, we will have uh, the listener call show. If you want to call in a show for the Thursday show, it makes sense to get your call in before Thursday. 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK is the call-in number. Uh, I have a lot of room for space on the show coming this week, uh, so go ahead and call your calls in. Remember, if you want to be on the call-in show Thursday, the formula is simple. Call from a quiet space. Have your question or your thought written down in front of you if you're not good at holding them in your head. Make your question or your point in one or two sentences and then fill in with your details. If you're on a cell phone, make sure you have cell service, good cell service, at least two or three bars before you call in because no one will be on the other end to tell you that they can't hear you because it's a recorded show, a uh, recorded call. Anyway, with that, please do call in your calls. Please do keep tuning back into the Survival Podcast. Thanks to all of you. And another quick announcement. This Saturday, we had our seventh year anniversary, seven years of TSP and still going strong. Thank you to all of you that helped make that happen. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Up 